Thank you, team. Take your uh, prayer cards and pass them to the aisles, and we'll team to collect them as they slip out. Or those cards, if you filled out for the ladies' luncheon or whatever, pass those down the road. Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 23, and take your book and uh, turn it to a page that will come up 12, page 12. There we go. That's a good place to turn. Page 12. And give me the monitor, if you would, guys. Page 12. I want us to talk about how to, to move from religion to a relationship. I think we have a, a lot of religion in our culture. And in the New Testament, every time religion is talked about, with two exceptions, it's used in a negative connotation. Jesus was always exposing the religion of the Pharisees. How do we move from, from religiosity, from religion, to real intimate relationship with Christ? I, I read a, an account of a jazz musician by the name of Billy Tipton. Billy Tipton was born in 1915. And he got to start in the big band era in the 1930s and, and uh, was an incredible gifted, incredibly gifted saxophonist. Had, had a pretty storied life, five different marriages, three adopted sons, and um, had some peculiarities. There was an article in Time Magazine about Billy Tipton and, 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 and said he, he would never give his social security number to his, travel, to his, uh, his agent. That was a little strange. He had, his three sons said they never remembered him ever going to the doctor. Their dad didn't, doctors were kind of off limits. And, and they never remembered their dad going swimming. Didn't like the water, just kind of stayed away from the water. Well, he died in the 70s, and at his funeral, the funeral director got the three adopted sons together and explained to them why these peculiarities were true. Turns out that, that Billy Tipton was actually Dorothy Tipton. Back in the early eras of the big band, women were allowed to sing in the chorus but not play in the band, and, and, and Dorothy wanted to play in the band, so she dressed up like a man and lived her entire life masquerading as a man. Now, I've got a lot of questions about that, like, like the five marriages, but I'm not going to go there. But as, as I read that, I thought, what a, what a picture of how many of us are going through our life living behind a mask, living a relationship that's not really there. It's really just a religion. How do we move from religion to a relation? Now, now, yesterday, I asked you how you were, and we all said, fine. If you go to Israel and you meet someone on the street, you don't say, how are you, if you're, you're going to not speak English. You, you say this. You say, ma shalom ka. Say that with me. Ma shalom ka. You kind of spit on the person with that ka. And, and, and what that means is, is what peace you, or we would say, how at peace are you? Turn to the person next to you, ask them that question, let them answer. How at peace are you tonight? Give them an answer. See, I think that's a better question than just how are you. Now, in Israel, it, the answer is be seder, which means I'm, I'm in order. That's, that's their version of fine. I guess if you're not fine, you say I'm out of order. I'm, I'm not sure. But, 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 but in our lives, we, we don't talk really honestly about our lives. And, and you're only going to really move from religion to a relationship when you stop living behind the, the facade of I'm fine, you're fine, I'm okay, you're okay, whatever. I'm at peace, you're at peace. And still really get honest. So I want to ask you that question again tonight. From, from an honest perspective, let's go back to how are you and, and think about the levels of honesty we really give. When you say to someone, how are you, a lot of times what you get is not how they are. You get how they're not. How are you? Well, I'm not bad. Well, I didn't say how aren't you. That's not good English. Uh, and, but, but we have a whole list of things we're not. 
You know, I'm, I'm not a drug addict, or I'm, I'm not an alcoholic, or I'm not a whatever. We have a whole list of things that we're not, and I'm glad you're not doing some things, but that's not my question. I want to know, really, how are you? So I, I feel pretty good. I felt great when I got up this morning, but I got over it, you know, or whatever, or I feel lousy, and it's fine to ask someone how they feel. That's a good question, but that's not my question. I want to know, really... Really, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing church. I'm, I'm doing visitation. I'm, I'm, I'm busy, 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 busy. I don't have too much time for the Lord, but I, I, you've heard it said, so busy in the work of the Lord, we have forgotten the Lord of the work. The problem is that busyness produces barrenness. And sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes barrenness produces busyness. Some people are, that are empty and barren just kind of get busy to compensate. We live in such a, a success-motivated culture. The metrics of our culture, of our churches, are basically two things, your attendance and your dollars. And, and so we conclude, as long as I bring my nose and my nickel, God is pleased. I was preaching one Sunday morning, and the church had a sign over by where this door is, and it said... Uh, attendance last week and attendance a year ago and offering last week and offering a year ago and whatever. And I, I was preaching on Sunday morning and I noticed everyone was looking over my shoulder at this sign. And it kind of got the best of me. And so I, I looked over there and, and there, was, there was just where this door is, there was a, you, you couldn't even see a body. It was just arms sticking out here, pulling numbers out. It, it was kind of like the, the writing on the wall, you know. And, and they couldn't wait till the service was over to know how many people were in the auditorium. Now, it's, it's fine to count numbers, but, but, but if that is the sum total of your Christianity, something's wrong with that. I, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you brought your nose and your nickel and, and whatever else, but that is not what I'm asking. I want to know, how are you? So I, I think I'm pretty good. In fact, I'll tell you what I think, and we love to give people a piece of our mind, don't we? Some of us don't have too, too much to spare. We need to ration it just, just a little bit, right? I, I'm glad you have good theology and good doctrine, but that is not my question. I want to know, really, how are you? And I think there's only one level you're going to meet God on, and we're going to call that the I am level, the level of transparent honesty. And, and, and we just don't do that well. We always have to put on the facade. I was at a conference some years ago, and there was a man there who was the vice president of the Exxon Oil Company. I mean, they have a lot of vice presidents, but he was one. And some years ago, remember there was an oil spill up in Alaska, the Exxon Valdez running around. It was one of the first big catastrophes with an oil tanker, and he was in charge of the cleanup. And he said, Steve, it was impossible. it's impossible to clean up an oil spill. I mean, you can do your best, but you, we, you saw pictures of all these animals covered with crude oil. See, we had, to, we had to send vets up there. We had to build hospitals, capture these animals, clean them up. It was just a massive thing. And, and then all the environmental things. He said, we were trying to show the world we're doing the right thing. And, and so we were going to have a, a after a, we rehabilitated some of these animals, we'd, we'd got a couple sea otters that we'd rehabilitated, we figured it cost us $80,000 a piece with all of the costs, but we're going to let them go back in the wild. So we called the news cameras up, and they set up some stands, and, and we're going to have this big event. And so we, a beautiful day, opened these cages. They bounded down the water, and we videoed and showed it, and everybody applauded. It was great. Within five minutes of their release, in full view of the stands, they were both eaten by a killer whale. That's a bad day for Exxon. Not, not a great day for those sea otters either. Uh, kind, of, kind of expensive lunch. 
but you still say, How, how's it going out there? Oh, it's going great. We're just, we're just doing great. You can't, you can't let down. I read about a couple who they, they were in their kitchen, and the, the man was in the kitchen kind of um, shaking, and, and, the, and the lady walked in and saw him, and she thought there was a cord going from his body to a coffee pot. She thought, he's being electrocuted. So she grabbed the two-by-four they kept by the back door for burglars, and in an effort to knock him away from the current, she whacked him in the arm, broke his arm in the process. Up until that moment, he had been dancing, listening to music on his headphones. <laughs> Bad day for everybody. But you ask them how it's going, fine, we're just doing fine. You've all had this, you're in your house, and the kids are screaming, the dog's screaming, the cat's screaming, every, and then the phone rings, okay, be quiet, be quiet. Hello? You know what I'm talking about? And, and we just do whatever it takes to keep the facade. You're not going to meet God there. You're not going to meet God until the mask comes off and we're honest enough to say, God, here's where I really am, to really identify specifically some of those needs we talked about last night. Here's some honest answers, things like, I'm hurting, that's how I am. How, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm going through some things. Where I'm, I'm fearful. I'm fearful about what's going to happen in our culture, what's going to happen to my kids, my grandkids. That's, that's an honest answer. How, how are you? I'm I'm angry. I'm angry, and, and that, that's honest, angry at this person, or, or just angry at an inanimate object. Ever felt like this guy? I, mean, I have. <laughs> Are you kidding? Where'd that go? What's wrong with my computer? You know, just mad, angry. Or, or, or I'm bitter. Man, that, that person said this, did this. I, I'm immoral. These are all honest answers to that question. And until we come to that level of transparent honesty, we're not going to meet God. I think, really, there's only two basic questions you and I are going to have to answer this side of eternity. Uh, two things that every person here is going to have to deal with. The first question is this, what is your relationship with Jesus Christ? That is the number one question every person is going to have to answer. What have you done with Jesus? Not what have you done with the church? Not what have you done with religion? So I've thought about him, sung about him. I know he's a friend of sinners, but is he your friend? I know he answers prayers, but does he answer your prayers? And the answer to this question determines whether or not you will be in heaven or hell. What is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, outside of that question, as a follower of Christ, there's only one other question. If I could funnel all the questions in the Christian life into one, I would say the bottom line question for every Christian, every follower of Christ is simply this, who gets control? That's the bottom line issue of your life. Who are you going to allow to control your life. Let me illustrate like this. Let me show you this little uh, vignette. I, I like to do this because in this little thing, I get to be Jesus. Hey, Jesus, guess yeah. what? Yeah. I decided to give you this. Well, you know whoever sits here makes all the decisions. I know, yes. And you, you make the best decisions, so I want you to sit there. You sure? Ab absolutely. Okay, yeah. all right. This feels pretty good. Hey, oh, hang, hang on, I'm getting a phone call. Sure. <laughs> hey, Chuck, what's up? Where are you going to go buy a new shotgun? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Wait a minute. I thought you and your wife were trying to get out of debt. Well, that's good. Oh, you're not going to tell her? That's bad. Hey, you want me to go with you? No. No. I mean, I don't know. Let me, uh, let me get back to you on that. Uh, Jimmy? That's weird. Yeah. What? What's the deal? What? I'm kind of one cheek in it here. Oh. I, 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 thought, I thought you wanted me to sit here. I, I do. I really do. But, but this person makes the decisions. I know. I just kind of lost my mind for a minute. I, I really want you to sit there. You're sure? I'm sure. All right. We'll, we'll try it again. Okay. 
Okay, I'm going to start this time now. Okay. I've noticed some of your attitudes are just not okay. being real see, patient. Jesus, I know what you're getting ready to say. You do? Yes. See, I've got a lot going on, Jesus. I, I know yeah. you're under pressure. You just don't understand the situation. I, 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 I Jesus, pre- pressure. You don't understand pressure. This is not working. What's wrong? I thought you wanted me to control you, to make decisions, to guide. I, I thought that was my stool. I, it is. I, I want you to have it. Well, you have to give it to me. Okay, take it. You have to make a choice. I didn't know it'd be this hard. You have to choose. I, I just can't. You just did. Now you see, in the throne of your heart, there is one stool. Only one person sits on that throne. Ever seen two kids try to sit on the same chair? You know what you have? You have a war when that happens. But in the throne room of your heart, there's not going to be a war. Because God says, you've given me that throne, but if you want to sit there, you could do it. You're going to crash. You're going to mess up. But I'm not going to force myself there. That's your choice. So, so the bottom line question that every single one of us has to answer is who are you going to allow to control your life? Every, every choice you made, Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the Spirit, step by step, choice by choice, thought by thought, decision by decision. Who gets control? Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If the Spirit is in charge, if Christ is on the throne, then you're not going to sin. The only way to sin is to push him off the throne and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. Romans 8.13 says, if you live after the flesh, you're going to die. If, if you let the flesh sit on the throne, if you're in charge of your own life, you're going to mess up. And every day, you get to choose. It goes on then, Romans 8 says, but if you mortify, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you're going to live. If you get off the throne and let Christ live there, it's a whole different story. Now, take your Bible turn to Matthew chapter 23. How do we move from religion to a relationship? In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was addressing the scribes and Pharisees. I'm not sure why they came around him. He, he was always exposing something about them, always pointing out issues, but, but they, they, they were there. In Matthew chapter 23, he's exposing the Pharisaism, the religiosity of his day. He says in verse 5 of Matthew 23 that they do their deeds to be noticed of men. They want people to be able to pat them on the back and, and, and say how wonderful they were. They, they love, verse 6, the places of honor. They want the best seat. They, they like, verse 7, the respectful greetings. Everybody better acknowledge all of their accomplishments. He says in verse 11, but the greatest among you will be a servant. They, they didn't like that. Verse 14, he says, in your pretense, you pray your long prayers. So people are impressed. And that's your reward, that people are impressed. That's it. Now, jump down, stand with me. Let's read a few verses here. Stand together for a few minutes. In this context, jump down to verse 23. Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek theater. Before the days of elaborate sets and costumes, the Greeks had a type of performance where one actor would play the entire play. He would hold a mask in front of his face, say a few lines, drop that mask, put another mask in front of his face, say a few more lines, and one actor played the entire play by putting different masks in front of his face. That kind of performance was called hypocritical theater. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like those actors. You're speaking from behind a mask. It's not the real you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, those who speak from behind a mask. 
For your tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and neglected the later provisions of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, those who speak from behind the mask. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm not a real germ-conscious person. I, I kind of think we kind of live in too sterile of a world. If something falls on the floor, 10-second rule, you know? Uh, we, we just got so many, so much cleanness that we don't have any immunity. And so, yeah, but you go to a restaurant, I, I see people, they send back everything. Something tips over or falls, whatever. It's, it's, if, if something's got crud on the outside of the cup, I just flick it off. It's been through the dishwasher. It's not a big deal, right? Now, but if it's inside the cup, okay, that's a different story. I'm going to drink from that. And, and he says, listen, you've got the outside all shined up, but the problem is not on the outside. The problem's what's on the inside. You blind Pharisee, verse 26, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, those who speak from behind a mask. You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. It doesn't matter how beautiful a coffin is, it still houses death. We were in Alabama driving to Walmart or something, and we looked out the window, and Debbie said, Steve, when we die, that's the kind of tombstones I want right there. I looked out the window, and here was a cemetery. I knew what she was talking about because in the middle of all these normal tombstones was one set of pink granite hearts. I thought, only if I die first. (laughs) Pink granite hearts. But as beautiful as those pink granite hearts were, they still covered death. And he says to them in verse 28, you two outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Father, please take uh, these words and the, the admonition that was given to these Pharisees and help us to move from the outward to the inward, and we'll give you praise. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I, I said yesterday that one of the prerequisites to revival is purity. And we talk about purity. Sometimes we, we only think about moral purity, and certainly it does involve that. But let, let me give you three aspects of purity that may, maybe this will clarify. There's, first of all, positional purity. Positional purity says, I know that because I am a follower of Christ, because Christ saved me, the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, that positionally I am pure. Positionally, I am already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. When God the Father looks at Steve Canfield, he does not see me because I am in Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. So in that sense, I am pure. I I know I am saved. I am in Christ. That's positional. That's great. But beyond that, there's, there's practical purity. The focus here is not on all you know. The focus here is on, is on what you do. We, we might say that I, I, I know that I'm saved. I know I have right theology. But why doesn't just knowing we're saved produce overwhelming joy? I, I'm, some Christians I meet are the most miserable people alive. You, you go to some churches and think you'd miss the church, got the city morgue. Why? Because it's not just about a position. Others say, yeah, it, it, it's about what you do. And, and, and here people say, well, I, I, I'm, I'm so good at what I do. I mean, I, I, I do all these works, and I, I keep the law, and I've been baptized, and I, I, I keep the Ten Commandments, and I, I'm, I pass out tracts, and I'm doing everything I know to do, but, but I'm still so empty. 
Why are so many followers of Christ enduring Christianity rather than enjoying Jesus, the author of Christianity? Why is our Christianity a duty instead of a delight? I think it's because we've missed the third aspect of purity. It's not just what you know. It's not what just what you do. But it's personal purity, and the focus here is on who I am. Personal purity focuses on the person that you look at in the mirror every morning. It's, it's the part of your life only you and God know about. It, it shows up in what you enjoy, what you desire, what you value. It's where God keeps the record book. Not in your perfect attendance pins. God keeps the record book on your heart. It, it's what you, it shows up in what you think about the last 10 minutes before you go to sleep at night. What you watch on TV when no one else sees. What you bring up on your computer screen. What you say when when no one else hears. What you whisper behind someone's back. It shows up in what you value. And here's the deal. You can know right and do right and still not be right. Because God looks behind the mass. I mean, the Pharisees tithe of their mint and their, their spices. And Jesus said, that's fine. But you've missed the more important things. It's not about your external. You can't dress up the flesh enough for Christ to accept it. What is Christianity anyway? People say, well, Christianity is is, uh, going to church, giving your money, and being miserable. Really? If that's all it is, go to church, give your money, and be miserable, we ought to get people saved, baptized, and shoot them. Put them out of their misery, if that's all it is. But that's not Christianity. The Bible says they were first called Christians at Antioch. They didn't make up that name for themselves. The word Christian means little Christ. And and these people were living in this city of Antioch, and and, and people looked at them and said, you know, you remind me of somebody. You remind me of that that guy, Jesus Christ. They were little Christ. It was actually a derogatory term initially. But when people look at your life, do do they look at you and say, I've seen the way you respond to the boss. I see the way you handle that, that, that financial pressure, that physical pressure. You must be a follower of Christ. You ever been accused of that? Christianity is a person. Since you've been saved, how much of the heart and life of Jesus has been reproduced in your life? That's what Christianity is. It's Christ being reproduced in you. Christianity, some people say, well, Christianity is knowing. If you want to be a good Christian, what you've got to do is you've got to get more knowledge. You've got to read the Bible more, study more. And the more knowledge you have, the better Christian you are. And so Christianity becomes all about our academics the problem with that is the Bible says academics alone produce pride. And, and the problem is we're about as valuable as an educated corpse. We've got all this stuff jammed into our head, but it's never made it to our heart. A.W. Tozer says that the curse of this generation is that we think that because we know the thing, we have the thing. But just knowing something doesn't mean it's real in your life. Just knowing you're supposed to be a good dad doesn't mean you are. Just knowing you're supposed to be a, a good husband, a good Christian, just knowing facts doesn't mean it's reality in your life. Jesus looked at a, a group of Pharisees and said, you search the Scripture, for in them you think you have life. They wanted to talk about, shall we dot the I here, cross this T? This book is not meant to inform you. It's meant to transform you. It, it, it's, it's not a textbook. It's a life book. And Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but the scriptures testify of me, and you won't come to me. You want to talk about, about this little dot here, this little tittle, you want to, but you don't talk about the person. And we've got all this stuff jammed into our head, but it's never made it to our heart. 
Because there's a stiff neck in between, won't let it pass. Christianity is not just about knowing. Something else comes along and says, no, Christianity is about doing. You want to be a good Christian, you got to roll up your sleeves and get in there and go to the soup kitchen and go on mission trips and work at the church. And the more you can do, the more actions you can give, the better Christian you are. problem with that is that actions alone produce self-righteousness. It's the Mary Martha syndrome. Martha says, how come, how come Mary isn't helping me? I'm, I'm serving. I'm doing all this. Listen, somebody had to cook the meal. Somebody had to clean it up. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus said, Martha, Mary has chosen the best thing. It's not just about all of your actions. Somebody else comes along and says, no, it's not either or, both and. You have to have right theology, right knowledge, right academics combined with right actions, and that is good Christianity. That is Pharisaism. They knew it all and did it all. They, they knew all the scriptures, and they even tithed of their spice. And Jesus said, that's fine, and then called them a brood of vipers. Why? Because Christianity is not knowing or doing. It's not knowing and doing. Christianity, I want to suggest to you, is being. It's not your academics or your actions. It's your heart attitudes that reveal where you're really at. If you want to know what those are, they're called the B attitudes. You can find them in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, the first few verses give eight qualities of what a Christian looks like, a follower of Christ looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. And it goes through eight qualities of what a Christian looks like. They're spirit-led qualities. And the problem is we're trying to say Christianity is all of our knowledge, all of our actions. And, and Christ, no, no, Christianity is about the internal. We, we've got to transform our thinking. Proverbs twenty twenty seven says this, it says, the spirit of a man is like the candle of the Lord searching the innermost parts of the belly. Another version says it this way. Our attitude is the light God uses to expose our true heart. You want to know where someone is really at? Don't look at their academics. Don't look at their actions. Look at their reactions. Look at what happens when things don't always go their way. I, I, I love sports. I, I went to a, um, college to play basketball, not to really be spiritual, and, and um, enjoy sports. And I tell you, you, you take sports and you let somebody get squeezed and watch what happens. Because the reality is this. Let's say I, I took this orange and, um, and, and I could just squeeze the life out of it till it was explode. What would come out of this orange? Juice. What if before the service, I took a hypodermic needle, stuck it in there, sucked out all the juice in the pulp, filled it back up with black India ink, and then squeezed it, what would come out? Black ink. And, and why is that? Because whatever's on the inside comes out when it gets squeezed. So you think about the last time you got squeezed, what came out. That's why I love sports. You can take nine guys in the church, I mean staff members and, and band members and, and elders, you put them on a church softball team, watch an amazing transformation. <laughs> They're yelling this, complaining about that. And you're sitting around the house and, and you've got all these kids and your child spills the milk. What happens? You blow up. Now listen, I don't understand. Now, I understand kids spill the milk. We had six kids. There were times I wanted to come to the table and just dump the milk out. Going to get there anyway, right? Just get it over with. I'm, I'm, they should invent a table where the top two inches are a sponge. It'd be a great invention. 
But your child spills the milk and you blow up like you spilled your milk again. That's the fifth time this week. Where did you get your brain from? Your mother? You stomp and storm and rant and rave, you know? Your wife touches her collar, it's sizzling, and finally, you know, she says, why did you get so mad? I'm not mad. Okay, okay. And, and finally you calm down and she says to you, why did you get so mad? And you say this, if that kid wouldn't have spilled milk, I wouldn't have got so mad. So what you're saying is circumstances made you what you are. But that's not true. Circumstances don't make you what you are. Circumstances reveal what you are. What we want to say is, I'm I'm this nice, merciful, easy-to-be-entreated husband. God says, oh, yeah? So God reaches down and knocks the milk over and spills everything. You think God does that? I I think he does. Just to show us the real us. You, You put some people behind the wheel of the car, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, they're out there. There's going to be people hawking each other on the church parking lot. What's that all about? And, and, and you just watch the last time you got squeezed, whatever came out of your life, that is the real you. And, and so, so God creates those circumstances to show us what those things are. Now, I want you to take your, your book and, and turn with me to the back of the book to page number Someplace. 80, 55, page 55. And on page 55, there's a little chart that I want to walk down a few of these with you. And I want to invite you to put a circle around the side that best describes you the last time you got squeezed. Now, now don't do that. Yeah, let's walk through a few of these with me. You think about the last time you got squeezed, which of these was the best description of you? The first one there is, is did you, were you a, a flesh-controlled Christian or a spirit-controlled Christian? Did you get angry or were you understanding? Think about the last time you got squeezed. Your, your kids got in your cosmetics and, and uh, you know, your grandkids came over and put lipstick on your mirror, dumped your Channel 5 all over the dresser, you know, made a big mess, whatever. Uh, were, were you angry or were you understanding last time you got squeezed? Were, were you impatient or were you patient? I don't understand these, these superstores that have all these uh, you know, checkout stands. I mean, you, Target, Walmart, 50 checkout stands and two clerks working. What is the deal with that? We, we never go we, to the grocery store with our kids. We put each one in a line, see who got there first and run to that person, right? And right about the time you get up there, one person away, a price check. Oh, great. Now they're going to walk to the back of the store. Where are the employees? They're probably in the lunchroom watching on the monitor, laughing, all of us standing in line. Patient or impatient. You're sitting behind someone at a traffic light and the light turns green and they sit there. What do you do? Talk, of course. I don't have two seconds to wait. I was in Texas some time ago. I was five people back. The light turned green and the guy behind me starts talking. Like, what does he want me to do? There's five cars in front of me. But that's kind of the way we are. Patient or impatient, which of those best describes the last response you had when you got squeezed? Did you claim your rights or yield your rights, as Jimmy talked about a few moments ago? You come home late for a dinner and and didn't tell your wife. You walk in and your wife sees you and she says, honey, I'm home. I can see. You been busy? What does it look like? I love you, same. You begin to realize um, that there's a problem here. Now, and, and then you notice your dinner's in the trash, right? And, and so, so what happened was she claimed her rights. She felt she had the right. to. Now, listen, I'm not saying it's a good thing for you as a husband to do, 
But ladies, when your husband doesn't tell you everything and, and things change, and your response shows who's really sitting on the throne. Now, I'll tell you how to have a good attitude there. Don't expect him to ever come home. Now, if he does, it'll be a blessing. That's how you can loosen that. But, But the problem is things don't go our way all the time, and we haven't yielded our rights. Last time you got squeezed, were you selfish or were you sacrificial? Now, you walk through the rest of those before you go to bed tonight and think through the last time you got squeezed what, what best described you? I, I think this uh, kind of summarizes it up for me uh, the best. I was reading this some time ago. I was sitting at a stoplight this morning. The lady in front of me was going through papers on the seat of her car, and the light changed to green. She did not obey its command. A green light is a commandment, not a suggestion. When the light turned red, she still had not moved. I began with my windows up, screaming epithets and beating on my steering wheel. My expressions of distress were interrupted by a policeman, gun drawn, tapping on my window. Against my protest of, you can't arrest me for hollering in my car, he ordered me in the back seat of his. After about two hours in a holding cell, the arresting officers advised me I was free to go. I said, I knew you couldn't arrest me for what I was yelling in my own car. You haven't heard the last of this. The officer replied, I didn't arrest you for shouting in your car. I was directly behind you at the light, saw you screaming and beating on your steering wheel. I said to myself, what a jerk. But there's nothing I can do to him for throwing a fit in his own car. Then I noticed the cross hanging from a rearview mirror, the bright yellow choose life license tag, the Jesus coming soon bumper sticker, and the fish symbol, and I thought, surely you must have stolen the car. <laughs> Last time you got squeezed, what came out of your life? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. There's really no major step demanded tonight. Just a simple step of agreeing with God, of being willing to say, God, my, my attitude has not been like Jesus. You may know all kinds of facts. You, you may do all kinds of wonderful things. I'm, I'm glad you do. But the reality is when you get squeezed, it's anything but Jesus that comes out. And usually, the place it shows is behind the doors of your home. This week, I'm going to tell you how you can live a life that when you get squeezed, Jesus comes out. I'm going to tell you how to do that. But we've got to start by saying, God, my my attitude, the, the reality is, I have not been letting you sit on the throne of my life. I, it's been me. And I'm impatient. I'm angry. I'm selfish. I've claimed my rights. And I want that to change. And if you'll start by acknowledging that, then God has some solutions for you. But you got to take off the mask. You got to be honest. You got to stop comparing yourself to those you think are worse off. Maybe even in your own home. You, you may be the most spirit-controlled person in your home, but if you're only spirit-controlled 1% of the time, that's not very good. And say, God, in these days, I, I want you to change me from the inside out. I don't want to just know more. I don't want to just do more. The Pharisees did that. I don't, I don't want a Band-Aid. I want a heart change. I, I want to live a real life. I want, I want a relationship, not just religion. 
take a moment. Tell God that's the desire of your heart. Tell him that's what you want. It's a starting point to change. You talk to him, and I'll pray and we'll close. Father, I just acknowledge that, that I'm in a process. We're all in a process. And the reality is that between now and the time we get back tomorrow night, all of us are going to get squeezed. And I, I just pray that as we go through whatever those experiences are, even just getting out of the parking lot or getting our kids in bed or going to work tomorrow, as we walk through our day, that we would be mindful of who really is sitting on the throne of our life. That we would acknowledge that our responses have, have not been spirit-controlled, but flesh-controlled. And our anger and our impatience and our selfishness and our claiming rights needs to change, and we want that. So remind us of that. Move us in that direction. Bring us back tomorrow night, and we'll give you praise. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And before you go home, I want you to turn to someone right around you, and I want you to tell them what God reminded you of tonight, showed you tonight. What did God say to you tonight? Have a conversation with someone right around you before you go home. Once you've had that conversation, you can slip out, and we'll see you tomorrow night, 630.